So here's the thing. Small island states contribute to very, very little to climate change. I'm talking about less than 1% of global emissions. Meanwhile, the US and China, only two countries, are responsible for just under half of total emissions. And yet, those greenhouse gas emissions have no borders. Surrounded by rising oceans and low-lying coasts, islands are some of the most vulnerable to the climate change monster that we had absolutely no part in creating. My name is Andy Lybert and this is Islands on Alert, a podcast where we discuss how climate change has already affected our islands, what's in store for us if the earth continues to warm, and how we can help to reduce the devastating impacts. Today we'll be learning about the field of climate justice. Climate justice is a movement that looks at climate change as a civil rights issue. Now, if you remember back in the Alliance Assemble episode, Ruana Haynes spoke on the very important point that climate change is not just an environmental issue, but a social one, disrupting livelihoods at best and destroying lives at worst. So, who should be held accountable for the destruction of these lives? Obviously, the largest emitters should take the blame, but the conversation becomes more complicated when thinking about the timing of climate change. Right now, we're feeling the effects of emissions from about 100 years ago. The effects are delayed. So, who do we hold responsible? The countries that were emitting the most 100 years ago, or the countries that are emitting the most now, even if we have yet to suffer from their emissions. Now, once we identify who is to blame, the more difficult step is figuring out how to establish accountability. Usually, this involves some form of monetary compensation, and as we will learn today, we are in the slow process of creating policy to enact this kind of justice. There are other justice methods as well, and we have an esteemed panel of experts to explain. Our first guest will discuss the importance of climate justice. Now, today I have the honor of bringing in Tina Stage, who is the current climate envoy of the Republic of the Marshall Islands. Now, Tina, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. It's my pleasure. Now, can you start off by telling us a little bit about your beautiful home? I've seen so many stunning images of it, the Marshall Islands. The Marshall Islands are uh, atoll islands. Uh, so that means we're all low-lying. It's, it's pretty much one long coastline. We have no high areas. In fact, I think the highest area on the island that I grew up on is a man-made bridge that's about 10 feet. Amazing. Wow. And I'm sure that is not uncommon for a lot of small island states. So I introduced you as a climate envoy. Now, can you explain what it means to be the climate envoy of the Marshall Islands? I do anything and everything related to climate for my country. Um, and so it's a position that particularly was created to help us, um, connect 
the dots um, in the ways that climate is affecting us as a people and a nation, um, because we are so involved in so many different fora, um, so many different issues, whether it's mitigation or adaptation. Uh, and there was the need for somebody um, who would help both um, internally, domestically, sort of connect the dots across our various government structures, um, civil society, uh, youth organizations, but then also outward-facing internationally help um, bring some coherence to all of the work that, you know, all of us are doing in my government to, to respond to this crisis. Now, Tina, I'm interested to know, and I'm sure our audience is as well, how and why did you get started with this kind of work? When I started out uh, as a, you know, young person in high school and college, I was really looking at um, the issue of nuclear testing in the Marshalls. The United States conducted nuclear tests in the Marshalls in the 40s and 50s. I was very much wanting to be, to understand that period of our history and understand the implications of it and why so much was still not um, being remedied. Climate change became something that, that was connected. There are definitely some differences, but there are many parallels with um, this sort of overwhelming um, crisis that was imposed from outside. Uh, that we as a community needed to be able to respond to. Over which you had absolutely no control. Over which we had had no control in the genesis of it and, and really were looking for ways to have to take control by responding to it. And so I really take my um, inspiration from the many Marshallese who stood up uh, on the nuclear front, um, spoke up against what they, um, were seeing and were, were voices at a time when, you know, many weren't listening to, to Marshallese people and those who had been affected by that testing. Not just us, but other indigenous groups as well in, in places of the world that are often seen as, you know, far away. Well, you're now hinting at the topic of today's episode, actually, um, climate justice. How do you define it? Just think back to this really key moment many several years ago. Um, I was back home in the Marshalls. We were talking about nuclear justice. And what does nuclear justice mean? I was at a, my elementary school talking with students um, and saying, you know, wh- what do we mean by justice? What does that mean? If you have a house... And a guest comes to stay and they trash the house and then they leave. What does it mean to rebuild, to have justice? Is it okay if they just say, I'm sorry, I trashed the house? Do they need to come back and um, clean it up? Should they come and if they trash it into the ground, help you rebuild that house. For us, it's all of those things. Climate justice is both an acknowledgement that harm was done. It's the provision of tools to uh, rebuild 
and restore from that harm. Uh, and it's the provision of tools to then chart a course forward. Are you satisfied, Tina, with the current status of the fight for climate justice? No. <laughs> I'm not satisfied. Nobody should be satisfied. I think for those of us who are from the islands, the fact is we've been seeing these impacts and ringing the alarm bells perhaps longer than anyone else. Those who are in the islands at the front of the line will be hit the hardest and have the fewest tools to respond. So, no, I'm not satisfied. So then what is the ultimate goal of your fight of for climate justice? What, what exactly are you trying to achieve? I can tell you what we're trying to do in my island country. I mean, we've fought for many years um, on the mitigation side, pushing and pushing and pushing um, for the 1.5 degree temperature goal that was enshrined in the Paris Agreement. But we really pivoted a few years back to adaptation. We've been investing our time in the creation of a national adaptation plan, which we call our survival plan, which, which really looks at what are, what are the options? A big part of that process, um, which is still ongoing is really having engaged and sustained conversations with members of our community so that this is an inclusive process so that people are given a chance to to say their piece, to, to contribute, to be empowered in determining their own future. I mean, for me, that is a huge part of what climate justice means. Having the tools and providing people the tools that are necessary so they can determine what their future is. Whatever that future might be, they choose. It's not imposed on them by some outside force which takes away all of their power. It takes away their voice. It's a matter of him, of human dignity, right? Dignity is recognizing that the person in front of you, they, they have a choice. It's not putting them in positions where they're forced to make choices that aren't really choices. Choices that would require leaving your country or leaving the, the culture that you know or giving it up. These are not choices. So that's what I'm, I'm focused on is making sure we have choices, real choices. Now, of course, geography and climate make certain countries especially vulnerable to climate change. But do individual social identities also come into play here? And by that, I mean, like, does age, race, and even gender determine climate vulnerability? So a big part of what I talk about when I talk about um, this internationally is, you know, if you protect the most vulnerable, you protect everyone. And, and we've certainly seen that with, with COVID, right? You, you, protect, you protect the most vulnerable. You, you protect your elderly. You, you protect your frontline workers. You, you protect your frontline, then you're protecting everybody else be, behind that line. Of course, it only makes sense. We have to do the same thing at home. And, and so that's why, as I mentioned with our national adaptation plan, we're spending a lot of time on this community consultation piece. And the, the, 
and, and, and it's, it's incorporated. There's a human rights lens incorporated into the NAP that very specifically indicates that we need to be looking to our vulnerable communities first and foremost. And not just looking to them, but providing spaces for their voices, um, so that their voices are central to the creation, um, of, of this survival plan. They come with solutions. We, we bring a lot to the table because we understand from a frontline perspective what the vulnerabilities are and what the responses need to be. Well, I'll just take you back to the start of our conversation and you described your home at that time. Small island protected by coral with low-lying coastlines, uh, which pretty much describes and reminds me of my home, Antigua. So it seems like the very aspect that make our homes so beautiful also make them particularly vulnerable to climate change. Well, between hurricanes and rising sea levels, uh, many of our islands will sink, so to speak. What happens when an island sinks? And it's a scary thought. Is it still considered a, a country? Um, does it affect the political autonomy of that country? The Pacific has come out with a declaration on maritime borders, essentially saying that borders um, are set, regardless of. So you 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 know, uh, borders are based on sort of internationally agreed. Two hundred miles out from your coast is is your easy your your economic zone, and that's that's enshrined in international law. Um, but those borders, that two hundred mile out border is based on your coastline, right? And so, so if you have sea level rise and reduces your coastline, that could potentially impact what is an established EEZ border. Well, the Pacific just recently came out with a declaration that said, that says, from our perspective, from our region, we see these borders as set, that climate change and sea level rise does not take away uh, from our EEZs, does not impact um, our autonomy, as you say, or our, our political status in this, in this view of international maritime law. Um, so that's just one example, right, of, of how as a region, but I think internationally as a, as a global community, we need to start thinking about how we respond to ensure that Countries like mine retain that ability to to determine our to, to determine our own future. I mean, really and truly, it is it is a horrifying thought. So, so who decides when an island is officially uninhabitable? And does the United Nations, for example, have a definition? I think my answer to that is: we need the people who live there need to be the ones who decide. <laughs> if there is a discussion on it. We need to be at the forefront at the, or at the center of those discussions. Um, any discussion that is to happen on what, what habit, what is habitability or what makes a place uninhabitable. It needs to forefront the voices of the people in those places. Otherwise, there's no credibility to the discussion. Well, well Tina, I can tell you this, that I was witness to Hurricane Irma and that's in 2017, which temporarily made my home of Antigua, well, the sister island, Barbuda, completely uninhabitable. 
um, the entire island, a small island, had to be evacuated and residents left their homes not knowing when and if they would ever return. So not all countries are so lucky to have a sister island to take in their people um, seamlessly at a time of disaster. Um, I believe such persons are called climate refugees. So I'd like to ask you this. Um, what does climate justice look like for, for these groups? The Marshalls really understands that what happens when you're forced to go into exile, where you're forced, where you're forcibly displaced, because as a result of the nuclear testing, we had communities that in fact were forced from their homes and still haven't gone back, still can't go back because their islands remain poisoned by the radiation. And we have no idea when they might go back. I mean, if, if nothing is done, it, it would be tens of thousands of years before the radiation is, is gone from those homes. And that has uh, an impact um, that is just almost incalculable incalcul- on a community to be exiled from your home, to, to, to be a refugee. Um, it then complicates your ability to be resilient, right? You've taken away the source of resilience for, for a community. You take away someone's home, you take away their ability to, 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 to be safe, to be both to be safe and their chance to come back on their own terms, on their own terms. And so we understand that at a visceral level, and it's why we absolutely, absolutely do not want that in our future. We are not accepting the refugee status at this point. We are fighting for our home. We're going to continue to fight for our home. It doesn't mean we don't understand the realities of what's coming. In fact, a big part of our adaptation process is in, is, is understanding those realities. Are there any higher level places within the country that we can now identify and see if, if there's an ability to move there? Ultimately, do we need to build up somehow? Can we, can we create places for ourselves in this country where we have lived for millennia and where we want to continue to stay? It's not to say that if you choose to migrate, that's, that's the a wrong choice. I go back to the choice. It's not forcing you into exile or forcing you to be a refugee. That's victimhood. We, we refuse to be victims. We, we, we know what that is like. If, if you've gotten to that status, it's really hard to come back. Wow. Ton load of information there. Thank you so much. Well, we, we have to wrap up, but, but thank you so much, Tina, again, for sharing in such a powerful and moving conversation. I, and I wish yours and the efforts of our small states in their various endeavors in this fight all the very best. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Our next guest now will compare what is climate justice in theory to what is actually being done on the ground level. We are therefore very privileged to be joined by Dr. Janine Falson, who is the leading negotiator on climate justice as well as the ambassador for Belize. Great having you here today, Ambassador. Can you start off first by just telling us a little bit about your home country of Belize? Belize is, is definitely a unique 
member of the Alliance of Small Island States. It is continental, but it has、um, many of the same challenges as other small island developing states. It it hosts multiple ecosystems ranging from mangroves. Um, to shrubland, to wetland, to savannas, to rainforests, it is a very diverse um, ecologically um,、uh, country, and it has long been a part of the Alliance of Small Island States. And Belize had the privilege of serving as the chair of the Alliance of Small Island States for 2019 to 2020. And as we've been asking some of our guests,、uh, how did you actually get started with? Your work in climate change. I have been twenty years part of the Foreign Service of Belize, and for twenty years, I have been dedicated to advocating and defending the rights of countries like my own. But I was fortunate in two thousand nine to have joined my delegation in Copenhagen, when I would say one of the major climate conferences. Um, of、uh, the century occurred,、um, which really changed the face, the shape, the landscape of climate change in many ways,、um, and it was definitive of the climate change regime、um, and the cooperation framework that we have now.、Um, uh, so I've been working since two thousand nine through to two thousand fifteen. Uh, for a new agreement on climate change, that would see the world come together to focus on a benchmark of, benchmark of ambition that small island developing states had put forward as one point five to stay alive. Ah,、uh, now you say fortunate, but I understand that the work has been extremely challenging. You know, it has been. Extremely challenging for small island developing states for thirty years. For thirty years of relentless advocacy, we yielded three historical climate agreements: the Climate Change Framework Convention, the Kyoto Protocol, and the Paris Agreement. So, as hard as it is to fight against really big guys in in the negotiating space,、um, it is absolutely rewarding to see. The results of that fight, Ambassador Felson. Let's let's narrow the focus now to an area of your work that you are particularly focused in, and that is climate finance. Explain for us what is it? What is climate finance? The definition of climate finance has never been agreed to, but <laughs> but we know it as the financial resources that developed countries are supposed to give to developing countries. In the fight against climate change, against the impacts of climate change, but also to attenuate、um, climate change, so to deal with mitigation, so that's to help curb emissions, and then to deal with adaptation. We've we've added a third leg in that whole journey of climate action, and that's loss and damage, because as you know very well in Antigua and Barbuda, you suffered one of the most powerful storms. In recent history, climate change in the fell swoop of a couple hours can take away everything that you have, your parents have, your grandparents have built up, developed. It can take that away in no time. 
So we have another concept called loss and damage. And that's another area that we are fighting for um, support to ensure that our countries who are inevitably going to experience that loss and damage will get the type of support that we need. It's, it's a very tricky argument to make because many in the developed world don't want to talk about compensation. But ultimately, that is where we're heading. As far as we're concerned, Paris Agreement incorporated the concept of loss and damage. But how far that goes is another question. Climate finance and climate justice go hand in hand. There's no question about it. How could it be? How could it be that the countries who contribute the least, and let me say this for the record, and do the most when it comes to climate change, how can it be that we pay for it? Now, clearly that's an injustice. So which, which developed countries exactly should be paying the price, literally and figuratively? Well, it's very clear who's responsible. The big industrialized countries. There's no question that itself is an accepted reality. They've spewed harmful greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, um, CO2 being one of the main ones. They've created a harm that we are now, we are now paying for, um, and they have a historic responsibility to pay for the consequences of their actions. The, the, the top emitters right now um, are the US, China, EU, and of course Germany is, is a major contributor there. Um, we have amongst the developing countries, India, Brazil. So indeed, there are a mix of um, countries, developed and developing. But what I don't want the audience to forget is that these greenhouse gases, carbon in particular, accumulates over years. And so the country with the highest accumulated um, carbon in the atmosphere is the United States of America. The big question for me is, have these countries been held responsible? Well, it's enshrined in a convention, and they have, they've agreed to it. They've, they've agreed to historic responsibility. And in 2009, they even went a step further, maybe not a leap further as we would want, but they did agree to delivering by 2020 $100 billion per year. $100 billion. And you spoke about quantum. And let me just put that in perspective. The quantum for developing countries to actually implement the commitments that we have undertaken in the Paris Agreement is more in the scale of trillions of dollars. One figure for energy transition, for instance, by the IPCC, is that it would cost three, three trillion dollars for developing countries to implement the Paris Agreement. Three trillion dollars. And we're talking about a commitment of a hundred billion. That difference is phenomenal, to to say the least. Um, so, so how was it determined how much money each country gets? And I mean, I've heard that a country's GDP is often used to 
measure a country's vulnerability and therefore their financial needs. But why is GDP a flawed measuring tool? And what does GDP fail to take into account? The argument against GDP per capita, which is, you know, valuing incomes over lives, um, that extends from 1994. So when the small island developing states agreed on a sustainable development agenda of their own, they already said, that doesn't work for us. Why? Development can be measured in many different ways. And one of the areas that small island developing states have been emphasizing is that we need to think about vulnerability. Because, you know, a hurricane that impacts a small island has this devastating consequence. I mentioned the case of Dominica, losing 275% of their, their entire GDP multiple times. A similar event occurs in another country, even the US, not a, develop, not a developing country. But the impact to their GDP, it will not be the same. It'll be fractions. Ours are multiple times our GDP. So the GDP per capita is an unfair assessment of our measure of development. It absolutely doesn't work. Even the World Bank, the World Bank itself has said that that logic, that economies are able to mobilize capital based on their income, simply does not apply to small island developing states. And yet, and yet, we cannot get them to change that eligibility criteria. After 30 years, we're still fighting for it. But Ambassador Felsen, you're still fighting. Um, But have you seen any movement at all? Any signs of progress? The United Kingdom has been um, engaging in a round of discussions on how we might be able to change it. And I think in COVID, there there are some exceptions. The pandemic has now exposed all of us to even more of our vulnerabilities. Even more vulnerabilities. It shows that it does, the income level does not matter. When there's a crisis, income level doesn't matter in the sense that, you know, just because I happen to be in a country with a, an upper middle income category, that means my people will suffer any less from, from someone else. Um, but yeah, so, so there are discussions ongoing. Antigua and Barbuda, as a chair of AOSIS, is currently discussing this new multidimensional vulnerability index. Um, and, you know, there are many, many uh, different partners involved in it, which is positive. But I quite frankly think we need to push this um, towards a case for SIDS exceptionalism. We need to, there's just no way, because we're just, we're not, we don't fit into an income category type of group. Um, we're a heterogeneous grouping of countries, but we come, we, we are united in one thing, and, is, and that's in terms of our vulnerabilities. And so we need the international community to respond to that unique case. It's, it's sui generis, basically, that's how I put it. Meaning you can't, you can't find a cookie cutter type of approach to deal with us. You just have to look at the cases and understand that there's going to be some ways in which you can um, assist these countries. So in, in the COVID-19 case, um, you know, you've probably heard a lot about debt for climate swap. 
it's an ideal instrument that would free up space for, for our countries um, and allow us to do climate action. Let's do it. And so where is this $100 billion plan right now? It had a target to be enacted by 2020. Where are we now? So right now where we are is possibly $79 billion as of 2018. Um, some argue that it's actually $22 billion. Um, so there are variances um, of, as to where that um, $100 billion exists. So we're so we're not we're not we haven't hit the bullseye, but but developed countries do recognize that there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of expectation for them to deliver. And I think we have to lean in on the United Kingdom as a COP president to urge those their partners in the G seven in particular, um to step up their their ambition in terms of the finance. It's serious. Will it be delivered? It's still, you know, the jury's out on whether or not it will be de- delivered. But I don't think there is a choice here. There is no choice here. So to what extent have the modalities been worked out? Um, how will these large sums of money be managed and used? Yeah. Yeah, so um, basically it's going to be guided by the actions that have been determined um, by countries under the Paris Agreement. For instance, you hear about nationally determined contributions. They're basically climate plans, what we're going to do um, to mitigate climate change, what we're going to do to adapt to climate change, and what we are going to do to respond to loss and damage of climate change. So there are tools to identify what the monies are supposed to go towards. Um, There are channels. So I mentioned the GCF earlier, the Green Climate Fund and the Global Environmental Facility. Those are the main channels under the convention. But there are other ways. There are bilateral channels. There are other multilateral channels, like through the World Bank. Um, Then there are Asia Development Bank, the African Development Bank. There are multiple channels for distributing the money. Um, And then there's also private finance. So governments can um, create guarantees to enable private finance to flow to countries. But I just want to make sure it's clear that when it comes to small island developing states, private finance is a difficult thing to secure. And in fact, um, in a study that's been done on on, um, small island developing states, we tend to um, rely more heavily on the public, the public sources of climate finance to carry out our um, climate action. So, so there are channels, there are sources. The other question is, can we access it? Small island developing states are very limited and constrained, um, and the channels and some of those um, funds, they're so heavy on bureaucracy and heavy on criteria that in fact, small island developing states are not able to access the funding that's even available. Um, in general, it's, uh, it's been reported that we access something like only 2% of um, public climate finance. And remember, small island developing states aren't just the Caribbean. It's the Caribbean, the Pacific, countries in, in the Indian Ocean, um, the South China Seas. I mean, 
44 states make up the Alliance of Small Island States. 44. Well, for me, this begs the question of whether or not uh, SIDS or small island developing states have the capacity to take on these large sums of money. It's something that we've argued for as well. Um, so we've, we've been pioneering these really incredible um, modalities to try to get finance to our people. So we want to bypass the multilateral entities that tend to go out and get the money very easily. So the UNDPs, um, and other um, agencies who are helpful. I don't want to say they're not helpful. But when, when you go through those entities, you, you pay a cost. There's a transaction fee. So one of the modalities we've argued for is direct access. So that our entities at home, whether it's your some uh, national development bank or a ministry or a fund, can go to, the, to a green climate fund and say, hey, I have a project. And you can access that funding without having to go through a middleman. That's one thing. The second thing that we've been pioneering is called simple, simplified approval procedure. So there's a lot of documentation. Some of it is very data intensive that countries like ours will probably not have. And then the scale of our projects probably don't require the extent of the documentation. And um, that's, it's, it's, you know, if you're talking about a couple million compared to hundreds of million, um, you know, requiring the same level of um, information is probably not going to make sense. So we've, we've moved for simplified approval procedures to deal with those um, issues so that we can get the money faster without as much hassle. But still, there are challenges. And so the other thing is that we need to build our capacity. And one of the, one of the strong arguments that has been made is that these funds can help us build our capacity. Um, there are different types of programs to do that. There are different types of approaches that can help us. You know, instead of trying to just capture a project by project basis, we can do a programmatic approach. There are ways in which we can build our capacity. So I wouldn't want it to be um, left with our listeners to think, oh, we're too small, it's never going to happen. No. No, it can happen. It can happen. We just need the support to make it happen. And we need the recognition that we are in a unique case. Now, today we've largely discussed climate justice in terms of monetary compensation. But justice is not only about money, right? I think another thing that you know we have to recognize is how much small island developing states actually contribute to planetary sustainability. I mean, you're talking about countries with endemic biodiversity, some of the richest areas of biodiversity. Um, small island developing states control just based on their exclusive economic zone, so the territorial waters that they're able to access, something like 30% of the world's ocean. 30%. The oceans cover something like 70-odd percent of the planet. And we're stewards of that ocean. We're providing essential services. We don't contribute to the problem. We are part of the solution. And in that sense, it's much more than just money. It's simply a matter of justice. Let's just go back to, to what, where we started. It is a matter of justice. So now looking ahead, 
What is involved in the 2025 plan? 2025, the new collective quantified goal that's mandated to be agreed upon by all parties. We start the process of elaborating that this year when we meet at COP26, hopefully. So it's, it's as yet to be determined, but our vision... Our vision as the small island developing states is that we're not going to repeat the follies of the 100 billion. So needs-based, as you rightly pointed out, it needs a needs-based uh, approach. And SID's exceptionalism is going to have to address the, needs, the specific needs of the vulnerable countries like the small island developing states. So there's going to have to be a specific, a multidimensional approach it's not just going to be one lump something. You're going to have mitigation, you're going to have adaptation, and you're absolutely going to have loss and damage in there. Well, we touched on this a little um, earlier, but how has the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, affected international climate finance? And uh, how do we even begin to move forward when there is when there is so much financial instability? There's no question that COVID-19 has compounded matters. It's compounded matters for the whole world. It's compounded matters for our countries. And it's really saddening to, 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 to recognize how deep and how scarring COVID-19 is for our economies. Um, our, our economies are seeing contractions in double digits. I think Belize is one of the worst with like a 14% contraction of GDP. Um, it's going to take a couple of years to get out of this. The developed countries, of course, are, are also suffering from the COVID-19 pandemic, but they have, they have space. They can print money in a basement. <laughs> um, they, have, they have space. And they've mobilized in a matter of months something like $12 trillion, at least that's what the G7 said in their communique, $12 trillion was put in place. And they made a commitment that that $12 trillion would help to build back better, to recover better is perhaps the right word. Um, so in fact, COVID-19 recovery creates an opportunity, an unprecedented opportunity, given the scale of monies that are being mobilized, to actually facilitate this transition, to actually use it as a lever to help other countries transition. Unfortunately, it's not there yet. <laughs> it's not there yet. But that's, that's an argument that we need to at the highest level, continue to make. And we've been making that argument. Our, our leaders have been making that argument, certainly in the Caribbean. Um, we've had big hitters from Prime Minister Motley to Prime Minister Holness, and now the Prime Minister of Antigua and Barbuda, who is the, the chair of the CARICOM Heads of Government. I mean, everyone has been, and, and the chair of Alliance of Small Island States, everyone has been speaking to that effect, that we need, we need to use this as a leverage point an inflection point to turn things around. So yes, it's made things incredibly hard, but it's it's an opportunity at the same time to turn things around. And Ambassador Felsen, I'm getting a sense of optimism from you despite everything that is happening. Um, am I correct? Are you, are you feeling hopeful? I think we always have to put 
hope first. We always have to put hope first. And I think for 30 years of advocacy, that's always been the mantra. It's hope first. And that's for small island developers. Well, Ambassador Felsen, we please continue the fight. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Language. Quite an insightful we conversation. Have to that they have a Hats future. off to you. And All the very best. That's why you continue fighting. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with your audience. Today's conversations prove yet again that climate change is about people. As Janine Felsen so eloquently put it, this is not only about money or policies. This is about survival. That's why we need to keep pushing for the $100 billion plan. We know the financials need to be more in the trillions, but this plan is more of a symbol of trust. The industrialized countries made a promise, and part of climate justice means making sure that they keep it. Next week, we will talk about the blue economy and how as small islanders, we are stewards of our oceans. I'll see you then. I'm your host for Islands on Alert, Andy Lieberg. Islands on Alert is produced by Leila Henry and Louis Price under the Alliance of Small Island States media team. Special thanks to Tashwa James and Bianca Bedu for additional scripting. Join us next time.